3 this morning. So if you would turn there with me, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these things. The wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. I was reflecting on the song that we sang, We Will Glorify. The future of that song feels imminent when you think, we will glorify God. We will bow before His throne. We will worship Him in righteousness. We will sing all praise to Him forever and ever. We're starting this morning on on a high note as we remember the hiddenness of our lives in Christ and specifically our lives caught up together with our appearance and His appearance. One event brought to the forefront of our minds. We can picture, as it were, on the ridge, that that horizon. We see Christ in His glory and the procession of the saints robed in splendor and, and coming, as it were, upon us. I want you to remember that thought. I want you to remember that image You're going to need it. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. We're going to miss those rays on our face here in just a little bit. The the path that Paul takes us on takes a sudden turn. And we need to keep that thought forefront in our memory. It is not sin Sorry, it is not sinlessness that fits you so well for a Savior. Nevertheless, we must all be killing sin. Paul begins, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Paul's commanding these Colossians 
to kill sin. Sin is the marring of God's image in us. It is our deliberate rejection of what He has created us to be. In Adam, each one of you were created in the image of God this morning. You were given what was necessary to portray God's beauty and His holiness. But when Adam and with him his wife Eve saw a more compelling image in the words of a snake than in the words of God, and they chose to live in that way, they sinned. And ever since then, the history of mankind has been a consistent pattern of sin. And it hasn't ended. But here Paul commands us to put to death what is earthly, that is sin. So so what changed? How is it that sinful man can be given a command, put to death, sin? Well, the answer is everything changed. Christ came. These Colossians gathered here in the presence of the reading of Paul's letter believed that the death and life of Jesus was of such consequence that they staked their very lives on it. They believed that all of their doing and living was to be brought to a whole expression in this new living. They believed that in Christ there was a supernatural gift given, an ill-deserved favor by God for them through which they might be saved from that sin. And so they lived, all of them, they lived by putting their life, their, the way in which they lived their life, they staked on Christ and on His Word. So everything changed. Paul then instructs them to put to death sin. He does this in four, four implicit ways. First, we're to put away sin because you're eager for the appearance of your life with Christ. It comes on the heels of what we saw last week. When it says, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Secondly, Paul says that we're to put away sin because the wrath of God is coming for sins like yours. Thirdly, we're to put away sin because you're not who you once were. You're not. You once walked that way, but you are not who you once were. And finally, Paul says, Stop sinning because you are been, have been put into a body together. You are in an environment of, of Christian deference and of mind-renewing grace. And sin is, to, sin is what keeps you from being bound in that body. So put sin to death. So those four things. You are eager for Christ's appearing. The wrath of God is coming for sins like yours. You are not what you once were, and you have been bound together in a body. So this ridgeline view this morning, this ridgeline view of Christian hiddenness, we must remember, 
as we take a turn and Paul begins to show us something different. We're headed towards the forest of our fleshly life and out of those beautiful rays which we saw. The, uh, the NASB more literally translate the fir- translates the first part of this verse very literally to kill the members of your fleshly life. That is, to mortify, to put to death. One, one commentator that I read this week talked about the surgeons of old. Before they would remove a limb, it was mortified. It was all the nutrients that would flow to it was cut off. It was deadened. And so what might have previously been a very painful and traumatic experience was not or lessened because what had been done was that limb had been mortified. It was now dead and it could be removed. This is, this is the sense of what Paul is saying. It's less of a direct amputation and it's a mortifying We must cease from the means and the opportunities of that sin, and we must cause that limb to be put to death. Now, when he says the members put, in ESV, put therefore what is earthly in you, or in NASB, those members, the picture in mind here is that sin is to you as the very members of your body are to you. They're connected to you. They're somehow part of you. You have an emotional attachment to them. And so, as he talks about putting these things to death, we must realize that there is something something about us. There are these members that do not submit to our head in Christ. They submit to our earthly head, our idolatrous mind that is caught up in passion and desire. And so, to remove them is like removing a member of our body. It is not something which comes naturally at all. It is something which must be commanded for us to do. The command then is to put these things to death. But the application comes immediately on the heels of this. The application is first given to sexual immorality. Now, is sexual immorality something which many have fallen into and is dangerous? Yes. Is it something that is particularly destructive, nevertheless enticing? Yes. Is it lethal for our walk with Christ? Yes. But I think most particularly why Paul puts it first is because it is the outermost, the most vivid expression of what reveals a whole forest of our fleshly life. It is that outer branch, if you will, which is connected to a whole trunk and a network of roots. It is what is most clearly seen. If you think about, if you think about Romans, when Paul wants to give an example of earthly living, the first thing in his mind is, is sexual immorality. Because, because we were created to display God's holiness. The, the very fact that this shows up tells you something. 
There's, there's many ways in which our life, our, our world, makes fleshly living not only conceivable, but desirable and easy. That's, that's the environment in which we live in. That's the air we breathe. But I want to focus on something even more particular, and that is, or maybe more general, depending on how you look at it, the fact that sexual immorality shows up here shows that God has a category for sexual immorality. There's, there's categories for wrong when it comes to these things in the world. We can talk of harm physically or, or psychologically or emotionally. We can talk of those things. But harm is wrong on its own grounds, on its own right. Yes, those things are wrong. But there is sexual immorality in and of itself that is wrong. It's its, its own thing. And that tells you that you were created, man and woman, to display God's holiness. There is something particular about our, our sexual existence, male and female, he created us, that is particularly meant to display God's glory. The way in which we interact with one another on that wavelength has particular God-given value. And it is important to him. But the root of sexual immorality, or we should say tracing down the, the branch of sexual immorality, where this comes from, is impurity. Now, what is, what is impurity? To take something that is holy to God and treat it as holy for yourself, entirely for yourself, that's what impurity is. In the Old Testament, you remember, things that were made holy were set apart to God, but they were profaned when they were made common. So what is holy unto God is made profane. What is holy, H-O-L-Y, for the Lord is holy, W-H-O-L-Y, for, for yourself. That's what it means to be impure. And the, the application to sexual morality should be clear, right? We are, our bodies are holy. But this doesn't apply only to that. This is, this is broader. All good things that God gives are our pleasure in food, our pleasure in clothing, our pleasure in, in life. All of these things are given to God. They are holy to Him. And when we take those things and we make them holy for ourselves, this is an example of impurity. We can think of children. Children are a good gift from God. But if in our parenting, if our, if our goal is someday I'm going to be able to brag about my child, someday the world will see my child and think, wow, how good a parent is. Or if I'm, if I'm concerned primarily about how, are, how is the world or how are these people viewing me as a parent because of my child, have we not changed something in our thinking there? Does not God want us to parent in such a way that our children are given to the Lord? They are not holy for us. They are set apart, holy to the Lord. But below, below impurity is passion. Passion is the opposite of self-control. Passion is what happens when all the things of life come in 
and draw up out of you a sinful response. What you see comes in, those images. What you hear comes in, that whining. What you taste or what you smell comes in, and so you overindulge. Passion is the, the sinful coming out against what, what, was come, what was brought in, so that all the world comes in and I give forth sin. That's what passion is. To live a, a passionate life is to let all those things be directed towards me so that I am helplessly given over to it. And yet below passion, Paul continues, is evil desire. At the heart of this is not just a passivity. It is a real heartfelt desire to go after and crave what is just wrong. To lust after what God has forbidden. Like the tree in the Garden of Eden. To see it and to want it for yourself. And under evil desire is covetousness. Again, to want it for yourself. The opposite of covetousness is is contentment. Contentment is said to be a rare jewel which makes covetousness a common thread. It is common to all to see what is there and to want it for yourself. We think of we think of Coveting people's possessions, usually. But do you covet their relationships? Most fundamentally, do you covet their providence? God has put them in a particular place. And do you position yourself in such a way that you see what God has done for them and you wish, why wouldn't God do that for me? Again, it is to orient all the world pointed in. It is to see the opportunity of all these things, images, smells, sounds, all these things are not primarily given so that I might know what is a way to live for God, that I might be content in the way that He has positioned me, and I would be rather thinking, how is that for me? Is that image for me? That person that just caught my eye, was that for me? That, that pleasure that was there, was that for me? My time that I cherish after the kids go to bed. Was that for me? Why is it that they get so much time and I don't? Why is it that their life is put together and mine's not? The whole world then, all the arrows of the world start pointing inward and upon yourself. And this is where Paul says, what is covetousness? It is idolatry. It is to think of all the world as not created for God's glory, as not created as vectors, as mirrors pointing back to what is God, is to say, all these things, all of them, how do they, how do they look at me? Everything comes pointing into yourself. It is to ask for the worship of others, of other things, of other providences, of other places, of other people. This is idolatry. And it is on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Don't turn away from these things too quickly. 
This is where the Holy Spirit has brought you. This is the place where we must reckon with the consequences of our sin. I want to read to you an example of God's wrath from Isaiah chapter 13. You can turn there with me if you would. Isaiah chapter 13. As you're turning there, I want to I want to tip you off that what is happening here as we go through and progress, Paul's not just listing things. There's an example here. There's an order to what he's doing. He's brought you off of that vision of God to look at the outermost branch, to the inward limb, to the trunk, to the root. And at the root of your sin, there Paul applies the wrath of God. Isaiah 13, starting in verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp and the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make the people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of His fierce anger." And we must linger on this. I, I don't really want to. But don't turn away from what God is doing in His Word. There's a, there's a booklet that's been talked about a lot lately, The, the Bruised Read. Um, Brother Mark Leroy and I have been talking about it on and off. Um, Richard Sibbs describes a bruised man or a bruised woman like this. The bruised reed is a man who for the most part is in some misery just as those who came to Christ for help. And by misery, he is brought to see sin as its cause. For what pretenses sin makes, they come to an end when we are bruised and broken. He is sensible of his sin and misery even to bruising. There's a real bruising that must be applied to our life. But how does this bruising come to us? Well, it may come in many ways. It may be from reading a text like ours in Colossians chapter 3. When you come to this, the Holy Spirit lays it on your heart. The wrath of God is coming. And in a sudden burden, the Holy Spirit applies there directly to the tumor that it's needed. The wrath of God. And you... Maybe a tender heart is bruised. There may be a stubborn root, though. And it may be years 
of prayer and fervent searching before God can truly be finished with His bruising of you in that manner. Or to, to a bold Christian, maybe it would be someone who, someone who struggled with sin for so long and has lost the, lost the courage to even face it. Maybe you go to a brother or to a sister, a close friend, a trusted friend, who you know knows the Word, and you say, friend, I'm mired in this sin. I don't know what to do. I can't, I can't face it. Would you at least show me the wrath of God that is meant for sins like this? That I might not walk away from it and feel as if it doesn't matter? And there, if he is a good friend, he will take you or she will take you and he'll show you this is what God thinks of this sin. There he will apply the bruising and he will pray for you and you will see his sorrow over you and you will weep together that the Lord might bruise you for a time. But then... Sibs continues that same quote. He is sensible of his sin and misery, even to his bruising. And seeing no help in himself, he is carried with restless desire to have supplies from another, with some hope which raises him a little out of, his, out of himself toward Christ, though he dare not claim to have gained any present interest of mercy. He continues further. Let this support us when we feel ourselves bruised, Christ's way is first to wound and then to heal. No sound, whole person will ever enter, enter into, heaven when, into heaven when temptation, when in temptation, think, Christ was tempted for me. My graces and comforts will be according to my trials. If Christ is so merciful as not to break me, then I will not break myself with despair nor will I yield myself to the roaring lion, Satan, to break me in pieces. And so it is, down at the bottom that Paul has brought us to, down in this gully of of sin, two little words come to us. Two little words in verse 8, but now. But now. You once walked a certain way, but now. But now. You can look, as it were, back and realize, He has brought me down, but I'm not so low as I thought I was. Down below me are the fleshly footsteps of my life under the fury of God. But He has set my foot on a higher ground. He has brought to me His grace. I am not who I once was. And there, brother and sister, you must apply, you must apply well and diligently the goodness and grace of the gospel to your life. After the bruising must come a healing from the gospel. Labor diligently to know this. Did Christ bear the penalty only for some of your sin or for all of it? Does does he give his salvation only to good people or to sinners? To rich or to poor? 
Who is the great physician said to have come for? The healthy or for the sick? Do you live under a divine scowl? Or does he rejoice over you for the sake of his son? Is his heart easily agitated or is he gentle with you and lowly? Did he only save you from the wrath or does he not make you pure? Did he only justify you or did he also purchase your sanctification and holiness? Did he leave you here on earth alone or did he send a helper? Has he redeemed you only or are you only part of a body? The gospel. The gospel comes in and picks you up a little from your low. And there you are reminded, God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above what you are able. If he sought you out and he set your feet on a higher ground, will you not seek and set your mind on the things that are above? Will you not look up then and not down? Will Christ not bring you up a little out of it? So the the journey begins again. We start again. But now, you must put all these things away. To put them away, the same commentator, Edward Elton, works through a a bunch of terms, and really the, the nuanced progression of these terms is not super distinct. But the, the concept is still there. There is a, there's a progression. The, the point of put away versus put to death is, is most likely sort of the context of what you would do with a body when it dies. It is put away. It is out of sight. So these things which, which God in his grace has brought to you, some relief which you have to some extent mortified and is is hanging there. They are not to be put in front of you. They are not to be your ever-present reminder. Certainly you still remember that you are a sinner. But once the bruising is applied, once your former sin has been shown to be under the wrath of God, and once you have seen that sin then nailed to the cross, and you have seen the Gospel of God, you are not to bring them up and drag them in front of you You're to disencumber yourself of these things, of its presence. Perhaps some of you have had some some progress in sin in your life. Perhaps some of you have had some some ability to mortify a, a particular sin. And once this real progress has been made, nevertheless, the guilt and the burden of that sin comes ever before you. And it continues to drag you down. It hangs there like a dead leg or a dead arm. And it impedes your progress. Here Paul would remind you to stop putting your dead members in front of you day after day. It's, it's not healthy for a Christian life to always gaze upon that which God has nailed to the cross. If the member has to a good extent been mortified by the sight of his glory, of, by the glory of God, and the remainder of his wrath upon sins such as that, and if it has been nailed to the cross, put it out of sight. Your eyes are fixed on better things. Your sins and your lawless deeds, he remembers no more. No more. Do you think that you are more righteous than God? That you would somehow 
<laughs> Somehow, you're going to live a more healthy spiritual life by always bringing up what God has always put away forever. This is not what God would have you to do. We must put them all away. So Paul then applies this command to a new set. A new type of, of tree is found in this fleshly forest. It begins with anger. Paul exposes this, this other root. He, he shows, first, the rotten buds. Uh, I'm sorry. The root of anger. And how it feeds the, the trunks of wrath. The limbs of malice. The branches of slander. The rotten buds of obscene talk. There is something different about these trees than the first ones. When we first have mortified and that, that limb lays loose, if we have not put it away, that dead sin, which is deprived of the life that it wants, wants to come up again. What I, what I thought I had put away that I thought was that pleasure for me. This, we have a lot of young families. This is the, how it applied to my heart, right? I'm holding my little one. He's crying. What I really wanted to do was many other things besides this. He's just crying. And I'm thinking, nope, it's all right. I don't need that pleasure right now. Nope, that's all right. It's not that. And once I think I've, I've finally said, no, it's all done, then I just get mad. <laughs> right? Set him down. Cry. <laughs> no. We must put these things away. I'm not to stand there and remind myself, can't have that. Nope, can't have that. Can't have that. It's out of sight. Put it away. Because God has redeemed me. God has redeemed you. And so, these, these trees are different. And they're different in another way as well. All the trees of fleshly living, of sexual morality, of passion, of pride, of evil desire, of covetousness, all the vectors of the world point into my heart and they're for me. And when that is denied, the sinful heart goes and points everything out at everyone else. Wrath and anger and malice. It's their fault. It's the world's fault. I will, I will slander him. And I will not be content with this because that has been denied from me. Proverbs 17.9 says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Proverbs 10, which we read today, The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool, but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. The pleasure comes to a man of understanding. And so, this steady climb out to higher ground, this, this higher ground, this, this putting away of sin, it starts at the root. 
And as it works its way out, you are putting away what Christ has already conquered. You may get angry, but you will not let old habits reign in your memory as if they are still your master. Slander still, feel, still leaks out. But when it does, you know it's merely the last-ditch effort of sin to come and conquer you. You will not ever put it before you. You put these things away because Christ has put you away and He has hid your life with Him. And so He continues to strengthen those weak knees from that descent and your, your weak legs. And so we come to another great little transition, another two little words. All the world was pointing in towards you and then in wrath it leashed out towards everyone else. But then He says... In the middle of verse 9, do not lie to one another. One another? Where did that come from? I thought, I thought I was working on this myself. I thought this whole time he was talking about sin in me. Where did, where did one another come from? Or think of later on. He says, here there is not Greek, Jew, Circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Here, where's here? Where is here? So now we get to see what Paul's been doing this whole time. Traveling through this passage so far, we felt the ups and the downs, right? We were at the peak, we were brought down low very low, under the wrath of God. And there the gospel was applied, and there he built us up again. This was the up and down, the undulation. But there was a progress being made at the same time. There was a direction, a, a, a heading towards something that we lose sight of in all the ups and downs of our sinful life. This direction was from internal to external, from wants and desires and things for me to wants and desires for others. It, is, it brings me from the focus of myself and draws me out externally to those around me. Paul is bringing us down through this from personal, internal, self-absorbed sin to interpersonal, external, self-giving love. And we don't get all the way there today. The, the full putting on isn't in, isn't in full swing until starting in verse 12 and continuing through verse 17. But we see where Paul is leading us here by putting this one another in. The new you is not only about a new individual. It is, but in this context, it's not, primarily, not even primarily about a new individual. You have lost members. They were killed, but you have gained members of Christ. You have gained a body of Christ. Your body, which is dying and withering, is being brought into a new body. You are being connected to His body. This is a new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of God. So notice how this works. The making of a Christian starts with union to Christ. When His death is your death, your sin is His sin. His burial is your burial, and His resurrection is your life. But the maturing of a Christian, the maturing 
is that union of that, of that union is your communion with each other. Putting on the new self is, in part, putting away the old, but putting on the body of Christ. And here he starts with honesty. Notice that. Do not lie to one another. He didn't just say, do not lie, right? We already saw the one another. This, this bringing together starts first and foremost with honesty. Why? Because you have put off the old with its practices and have put on the new, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The creator of the new self is Christ. You were made in the image of God, but here you are being remade in the image of Christ. So the aim of honesty here, I take primarily to be an honesty about what Christ is doing in your life or what Christ has done in your life. The word, this, this progression we saw, put to death, put away, now it says seeing as you have put off the old self, that word put off is literally stripped. The way in which it, the, the actual word only appears once other, one other place in the Bible where, where Christ disarmed or stripped the enemies of their weapons. But it is analogous also to the stripping of Christ on the cross when he was laid open and bare. There is an honesty that, comes, that we come to when we come together. There is an openness. But not an openness to leave you naked. There is a clothing because you, have been, you are putting on the body. So this progression that Paul says, we started off put to death, and you might expect Paul to go to, therefore, make, make alive these things. And that's, that's true. But there's two things going on here. Put to death turns to put away, turns to put off, turns to put on. Put on is like, is like clothing. That's the context of that word. So these two things are happening simultaneously. You're putting to death and being made alive, but you're also putting away and putting on. There's a horizontal level to what's happening as well as a vertical level, right? So people think, my Christian life really doesn't, really doesn't affect people that much, does it? No, <laughs> Your personal walk with Christ, your personal living, your personal commitment to Christ has huge implications for what we do together in this body, in this life. And vice versa. Your life in this body has huge implications for what you put on. Who are you putting on? With whom are you doing it? Do they, do they see the beauty of the Bible, of God's Word? Interestingly, and just, just before concluding, I would draw your attention to this final, final thing as we um, round the turn here. Um, and I, th- I think I skipped a part, so I'll also touch on this. <laughs> so here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free. The emphasis there, I think, is that when we come together, what are we primarily singing? Are we primarily seeing people with dead arms that keep... keep getting life put in them, or are we primarily seeing Christ in other people? Right? Are we determining, I will see Christ in my brother? Right? Christ is all. There's nothing else. And in all, there is no one else. Everyone here is in Christ. And that word here, it has a sense of arrival, doesn't it? We've been traveling, and he says, here. Now, we're not, 
we're not ultimately here. We will glorify. We will worship the King of Kings. But here, there is not Jew or Greek, slave or free. If you're wondering, okay, I need something more in the Christian life. What's missing? Brothers and sisters, this is it. We're not all that we can be. Certainly not. But this is all there is. This is what Christ has bought. A people redeemed for himself. Here, we sing only Christ. And so we think about these three things of life together that Paul points to, right? There is, there is the honesty together. Do not lie to one another. There is the renewing according to knowledge in this environment. And there is the seeing only Christ in one another. And I don't think that Paul specifically has these things in mind, but I do think these things fit so well because it's the same basic principle. When we exempt what, what you see every week, when we welcome people in as members of Christ, what are we doing? Well, they are being, they are, they are, we are determining to see only Christ in them. We look and we say, yes, I see Christ. That, that is what I see. I don't see, I don't see ill-dressed neighbor. I don't see barbaric Bob. <laughs> I don't see, <laughs> sorry, Bob. You, you, you drive a Honda, but <laughs> sorry. Um, no, we don't see those things. We see Christ in one another. And what do we, what do, we do when we take the Lord's Supper? Well, don't lie to one another. Don't lie to one another. Are you taking the body of Christ and making it your own? Are you laying yourself down on, on the altar before God and saying, God, make me what you would? And what do we do every morning? Whether it's preaching or teaching or speaking with one another, we're renewing each other's minds in knowledge. These are the three things. So when Paul takes you from put to death sexual immorality to put on the new self, he's brought you into this body where Christ is renewing and giving honesty and giving life and we're seeing Christ in one another. And that's what Paul is about. And this, this makes sense, right? I mean, next week we're going to see um, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. So, in conclusion, uh, Paul would have us put to death sin for these three reasons, right? Because we're destined to appear with Christ in glory. Because the wrath of God is on sins like ours. But because you are not who you once were, because he has taken you and he has put you in a body to renew you in Christ. This is why we put to death sin together. Brother, would you come forward?